scripture passage is from Esther, book of Esther, uh, chapter 4, verses 10 through 17. Then Esther spoke with Hathak and gave him a message for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. Only if the king holds out the golden scepter to someone may that person live. I myself have not been called to come into the king for 30 days. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them in reply to Esther, Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your family's family will perish. Who knows, perhaps you have come to royal dignity for such a time as this. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's pray. Lord, your scripture is like a seed, and our hearts are kind of like soil, and so we're asking you to prepare that soil. May the seed of your word be planted in it, planted deep, may it germinate, grow, bear fruit, bear fruit for our lives, for our neighborhoods, communities, families, the whole world. In Christ's name we pray, amen. For the next three weeks, we're going to be thinking, talking, looking at this remarkable book called Esther. Um, I think I've, I, I've been preaching every Sunday practically for about 10 years, and I think I may have preached one sermon on Esther, maybe, maybe. Um, the book of Esther has been neglected. It's been neglected by me. It's been neglected by a lot of other people currently and in history. Luther was not a, Martin Luther, the great reformer, was not a big fan of Esther. He wanted it out of the Bible probably had to do with his anti-Semitism. Um, one of the other reasons probably that Esther is left out is because the um, powerful, redemptive figure in the book is female. And I think that makes some people uncomfortable. They'd much rather have a David character or a Moses character or a Joseph character, all men. Uh, there are other reasons why I think Esther's been left out. Esther never once mentions the Torah, the law, which was central to the Jews. It doesn't mention returning to the homeland, to Israel. It doesn't even mention the land itself. It doesn't mention the monarchy, none of the kings. It doesn't mention any of this. It doesn't even mention prayer or religious practice. Um, and famously, the word God is not in the book of Esther. 
It's the only book of the Bible that does not mention God. I think most of us just don't know what to do with a book like that. That's a weird book to be in the Bible that doesn't talk about God. And so what do we make of a book like that? I'm convinced that Esther's time has come. That just as Queen Esther was put in a certain place for a particular reason that she didn't know, I think the book of Esther has been put in the Christian Bible for perhaps other times, but certainly our time, the time we're in right now. And that's why I think it's worth spending at least three weeks on it. The first two weeks will be me preaching, and then the third week will be the kids presenting this in, um, in a play. First, you have to know what the story is. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to briefly recount the story of Esther. But look, uh, my telling is, is going to pale in comparison to you reading it. Um, if you like a good story, then you're really going to enjoy reading Esther if you haven't read it recently. And I apologize for assuming most of you haven't, but eh, I might be right. Um, it's a great, great read. There's only a handful of main characters. There's King Ahasuerus who is the king over all of uh, the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire was massive, went down into Africa, into Europe, out to Pakistan. It was a huge, huge empire. He's probably the most powerful person in the world at this time. He has a queen, her name is Vashti. Uh, and then we have Esther, whose Hebrew name is Hadassah. She's just, uh, she's an orphan. And she's raised by her cousin, an older cousin named Mordecai, who sort of adopts her, takes her in. And then lastly, the last other main figure is a guy named Haman, who's a nobleman in the Persian Empire. One day, King Ahasuerus, there's banquets all over this book, and he's having yet another banquet. And he says, I want my king to come into the, I want my queen to come to the banquet. I kind of want to show her off. And she refuses. And uh, he uh, can't handle it. Okay, so a little knock to his ego, something like that. And he banishes Queen Vashti from the whole empire. He says, she's out. Time for a new queen. So he holds like a beauty contest to try to figure out who the new queen is going to be. And uh, Mordecai says, hey, Esther, maybe you should, you know, get in on this and try this out. Esther gets in there and through a lot of like coincidences and inexplicable events, Esther ends up replacing Queen Vashti of Queen of the Persian Empire. It's nuts. Okay. So that's the first thing that happens. And then there's some, uh, some sort of strange, kind of seemingly disconnected events that sort of go on. So for instance, um, her, her cousin, uh, caretaker Mordecai, he is uh, at the city gate, and he hears of a plot to kill the king. And he tells uh, Esther about it, and the plot is foiled, and the king doesn't die. The king is not assassinated. And then the story just quickly moves on from that, uh, but we come back to it later. After that, um, Haman, the nobleman I was talking about earlier, he's promoted, he becomes prime minister, this is a huge deal, and he says, you know, I'm prime minister, I want everybody to bow to me. Mordecai, inexplicably, does not bow to him, will not bow to him. And this drives Haman insane. You talk about a guy with a fragile ego. This is Haman to a T. He can't stand this, and so he manipulates the king into this idea. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a genocide for all the Jews in Susa, which is the town that they're in. 
and I want you to uh, sign off on this king, and he, he offers a huge bribe to the king. King signs off, and um, there's going to be a genocide of all the Jews, and, and they pick a date. And the way they pick a date is by kind of casting lots or rolling the dice. And the Hebrew word for dice is her, which is where we get the holiday that this, um, this book, that grows out of this book, which is called Purim. Um, it just means like chance or luck or, you know, uh, that kind of thing. We'll come back to that. All right. So uh, th this, this is a horrible thing that has happened. And Mordecai is distraught and he reaches out to Esther and he says, Esther, you got to do something. That's the part I read earlier. That's the scripture I read. It's that conversation between Mordecai and Esther. And Esther is kind of like, I don't think it's a good idea for me to do something. I'll probably die. And he, and he says something really interesting. He says, look, the Jews are going to be okay, but we have a choice whether we want to be involved or not. And it may be, Esther, that you're already involved in this. It may be that you're queen precisely so that you can respond to this crisis. And she says, I'll give it a try. And if I get killed, I get killed. So she's starting to work on the king. And it, it is, she's very shrewd, very shrewd. So she's trying to work on him, doing some banquets and that kind of thing. Meanwhile, we still have this goofball Haman. Um, Haman's not done. He uh, sets his sights on murdering Mordecai, not just all the Jews in Susa. And so he builds this, uh, builds this sort of execution device that's basically a large spear. This is, this is a dark story, by the way. And um, so it's a huge spear to impale him. Uh, and so he constructs this thing to kill Mordecai. One night, the king isn't sleeping. He has insomnia. He orders to him, read the record of the history of his kingdom. He figures, that's going to put me to sleep. <laughs> what gets read to him, of all the things that could have gotten read to him, the thing that gets read to him is the time when Mordecai saved his life. And he's like, this guy, Mordecai, is amazing. Has anything been done for him? No. Okay, I'm going to do something. In walks Haman. He says, hey, Haman, how should I reward somebody who does me a really good deed? And Haman's like, yes, this is my moment. Finally, he's going to reward me, even though he's already prime minister. He's like, okay. So he says, I, I think you should treat him like a king, whoever this person is. I think, I think he should be treated like just like you. And the king says, that's a great idea. Haman, I want you to go out and treat Mordecai like a king. Haman is devastated, right? So he has to walk around town. He has to show off Mordecai. Mordecai's dressed like wonderfully and he's on a horse and all this kind of stuff. So now Haman is absolutely fuming. Like he, he's going to blow his top. He goes home, complains to his family and his wife's like, you're going to lose, man. Like you cannot, you cannot win this. You are done for if you keep at this. She's right. Um, Finally, Esther has been working on the king, makes her move. This is the big move. She requests a banquet. At the banquet, she says, look, I'm Jewish. You've issued an edict. All my people are going to be killed. Please don't do this. He has offered her half his kingdom, and that's her request. She could have gone for a lot of other things, but she goes for that. Suddenly, the king, the king is a, another goofball in this story. The king's like, who did this? Well, you kind of did it, but whatever. He's like, who, who's to blame for this? This is awful. And, uh, and Esther's like, it was Haman, actually. And, and the, the king is furious. And he says, no, I, you know, I, I'm, this is awful. Execute Haman. How are they going to execute Haman? 
Oh, there's this whole thing that's been set up outside. It'll be perfect to execute Haman. Who built this, by the way? So Haman is executed and held on a big stake. And, um, and then uh, the king, for some reason, can't revoke an edict that he's already sent out. So he says, look, I, I can't revoke the edict, but I can do another edict that the Jews can defend themselves. So the Jews defend themselves. Mordecai is elevated. Um, the um, there is a battle, the Jews win the battle, a bunch of the Gentiles think the Jews are amazing and they convert to Judaism, and there's a huge, huge feast and festival at the end of the book, and that festival um, is to be remembered forever as, as Purim, as, as the holiday of Purim. And so Esther is, is really the only place in the Bible that, that um, gives us this Jewish holiday called Purim. Okay, that, you know, I don't have a ton of time, so I, I left out a lot of really kind of, it's a very funny book, um, it's a very um, peculiar book, unexpected things happen, it's very fun to read and I strongly recommend it. Um, what I want to focus on this morning, next week we're going to talk a little bit about what it means to be a people in exile. Um, and, and, and there's a lot about this in the book of Esther, because they're in Persia, they're not going home, they're stuck there. So what does it mean to be a people out there in another land, okay? But this week, I want to focus on this whole idea of who in the world God is in this story. If God isn't mentioned, then how do we even know God is in this story? One of the first things I think of when I think about this is, is how... Have you ever noticed, especially around years like this, you know, like election years, how the word God gets thrown around a lot? And people really like to use God's name to underwrite whatever their project is. I don't know if you've noticed this, but like politicians really like to do this. You know, they, they, they love to sort of like add this sort of divine right or, or divine um, endorsement of you know, something that happens to be their whole political agenda. Well, how convenient that those go together so well. And sometimes you can hear that name God so much that you'd rather take a break from hearing it so much. Maybe that's not all of you, but that's certainly the case sometimes for me. And that is one of the things that's really refreshing about the book of Esther, is Esther talks all about God without using God's name. How? By showing and not... Sorry, yeah, showing and not telling. Showing and not telling. It's like the classic fiction kind of thing. Like, show us, don't tell us about God. Don't give us a propositional statement. Don't give us a theology. Show us what God does. And that is what the book of Esther does. The book of Esther shows us how God works in the world. We tend to think that there's, I'm going to oversimplify this, but we tend to think there's two options of us and God in the world. One of them is... God's just looking out, look, looking for us to do the hard work, the heavy lifting. And if we don't do it, everything's going to fall apart. When a crisis comes along, it's really up to us, and God says, hey, I've given you some tools, but get out there and do it. That's one option. The other option is we have to be really, really good in order for God to be on our side. We have to be excellent people. We have to do the right thing, and if we slip up just a little bit, then we're going to be off the track and God's going to be against us and God's probably going to punish us. One of the remarkable things about Mordecai is he doesn't opt for either of those two options. He doesn't think the Jews are getting punished 
for this genocide. And he's also convinced that redemption is going to come. He's not, he's, not like, he's not like, Esther, if we don't do something, everything is going to fall apart. Everybody will die. It's all up to us. That's like every hero movie we watch. He's like, it all depends on you. Mordecai knows it doesn't. Mordecai knows that God is at work and God is going to rescue his people. But he also knows that God has already been at work. Mordecai has the sensitivity to know that, wait a second, maybe this like weirdness of you being queen of the Persian Empire, maybe that's God already working. So maybe God's already at work and we can participate in that. Think about, um, think about your life and how much of your life has been shaped by you and your decisions and your hard work and everything that you've done versus happenstance, versus coincidence. For instance, you, uh, so many people in Colorado are not from here. Um, most of you decided to move here at some point. What if you'd moved somewhere else? Imagine how different your life would be just for that one decision. Or you decide to go to a school, and maybe it's Maybe it's a college or something like that, and it's in town, or it's, or it's in a different state, and you meet lifelong friends there, or even perhaps a spouse. How different would your life have been if you had just chosen a different place to go? How many, what different life would you live, the different people you'd be connected to? We have no way of knowing, of course, but there's all these decisions that we make that have all these implications that we can never know the implications of. The truth is, most of life is actually out of our control. We'd love to think it's in our control. We'd love to think that being a good person means everything will work out. Doesn't. Doesn't. We'd love to think that we can chart the course when we're really young. You know, when we're in high school, we can say, I'm going to be this, and this is my pathway, and this is what it would look like. And it almost never works that way. Even if sometimes it does, the truth is, is your existence at all is a fluke. It is. The, the, you, you might not have been here. Who knows what kind of decisions your parents were making? And whether they were good decisions or not. I mean, we don't know, right? I don't know, you know. Maybe you don't know, I don't know. But, but, and that's what Mordecai says. He says, who knows? Who knows? That's most of life. And I think we're, we're, we're rightly uncomfortable by using words like fluke and luck and coincidence and happenstance. And, and the reason we're uncomfortable is because we think it has no divine intent behind it. But what the book of Esther shows us is that from our perspective, life really does look that way. But, but, because of who God is, those flukes, those happenstances, those strange events, God ends up using to do some remarkable things. And so in the Bible, a synonym for luck would be grace. And Esther really is telling us the whole story of the Bible. It's always about this. Esther is not unique at all. I mean, the very beginning of the Bible, we have creation. Why is there things when there could not be things? 
Poof. God didn't have to create anything, but God creates. And then, and then all of a sudden you have all this, like, uh, the younger inheriting um, what the older is supposed to get. That's kind of weird. And then you have all these old, old parents who've never had children giving birth to whole nations. You have the wrong people being chosen as kings. You have prophets seeing lions and lambs together. You have, um, most bizarre of all, you have uh, a carpenter's son from Nazareth turning out to be the source, the substance, and the purpose and meaning of all created things, Jesus Christ. The story of the Bible is grace, but when you're in the middle of it, it sure looks like dumb luck. The book of Esther is saying that we don't have to face history as a kind of like ruthless cause and effect that, that we have to either get on top of or we have to try to convince God to get on his side or him get on our side or whatever, but that we can live in the midst of a very contingent world, a world where we don't fully understand what's going on. We can live in the midst of it and we can look and we can say, let's be part of it. Let's be part of what God's doing. God is going to work things out. God is going to restore all things. Let's participate in it as best we can. And if we perish, we perish. Marie Curie was, uh, is well known for winning the Nobel Prize twice. And um, a lot of it had to do with her work around radium and radiation. And these were uh, world-changing discoveries. We, our world would not be the same if this had not been, um, uh, not been found. And some of it has led to great accomplishments, but in her life, um, a, lot of, a lot of her work led to a lot of sickness and death. She became very sick from the radiation, her husband very sick, um, and a lot of people in other parts of the world from working with radium um, became sick and died. Later in life, it was World War I, later in her life, World War I, she wanted to do something for the war effort. And so she proposed to the French government to have x-ray machines installed in the ambulances. And so they could x-ray soldiers, figure out what's going on, and stop amputating so much, and, and save lives. Um, at first, they refused her. They said, we just don't have the money for it. And then she brings out her Nobel Prizes. They're these big old hunks of gold, solid gold. And she brings out these two Nobel Prizes that she's won. And she gives them to the French minister. And she says, use these for the money. He says, well, we can't do that. And she said, you, you can almost hear her. You can almost hear in the words of Mordecai saying, who knows? Maybe the reason, the only reason I won these Nobel Prizes wasn't for the, the prestige. It wasn't you know, for, for my accomplishments. Maybe it was for that very moment, for such a time as that, to be able to rescue these soldiers and save their lives. She could never plan that. She could never have plotted that out in her life. And yet she had the ability, the imagination, the sensitivity to be able to identify that something larger was at work. And that something larger is grace. And we see that grace most clearly when God decides to take a chance, to take a risk, to be in, in, in wrapped in the flesh of a frail human being. And through that work, ends up 
dying, rising from the grave, and rescuing this world. We're all in time. We're in the middle of it, and we can't know how it's all going to work out. We can't predict, and we cannot control the events of lives. But we can face these events, however dire, with faith, that Christ will restore all things. So let us join in that story of restoration. Amen. Father, we trust history to you. We trust the events of our lives to you. Lord, let us not be like Haman, trying to orchestrate things to build ourselves up, to make ourselves important, the center of the universe. Lord, give us a sensitivity, a perception to understand how you are working. Let us live in grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. May the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. And may he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Amen. Go in peace. Oh, my God.